Minus 15. Respect all, fear none. Into the upper deck. Intensity is not a perfume. Hello, Utah Street. Five, four, three, two, one. From inside the warehouse at Oriole Park at Camden Yards, it is the Masson All Access Podcast. Paul Mancano and Brendan Mortensen here with you after a very late night. Yes. Today is Tuesday. We stayed up late last night, Monday, hoping for some kind of news about the lockout. And it it, it reached a point, Brendan, where I felt like, you ever pull an all-nighter in college? Oh, yeah. Get a paper done or study for a test or something? Get yeah. a paper done because you wouldn't pull an all-nighter. Do you ever pull an all-nighter studying for a test? I don't think so. I feel like you you reached a mission. I feel returns. like it's only get a paper done or yeah. you're actually having fun. Because the sleep actually, you know, do you pull an all nighter having fun? Yeah. College? Oh man, all nighter? Yeah. It's college. It is college, but wow, uh, cool kid over here. Didn't realize. Weird flex. Anyway, <laughs> continue. Uh, it reached a point where you have to decide: Do I go to sleep now and try to wake up in like two hours? And, you know, finish this paper or do I just plow right through? Do I double down? I get more caffeine and I hit that point around 130 and I thought I, I can just plow right through, but I will be a dead man walking tomorrow. I will be a zombie. Well, especially with studying, I feel like I was always at the point where you either there's a certain point where it just doesn't benefit you anymore. Yes. Where you just aren't going to learn anything at 2 a.m. Right. And, and the sleep, the sleep is, would help you more. Yeah. Sleep also consolidates memory something I learned in college. So like if you if you study right before you go to sleep, that's the best time to kind of get it in your brain Interesting. before the next day. But but I kept nothing of what was tweeted last night in my brain in terms of the specifics. Of, no, I, I all, yeah, flew right past me, yep. let me tell you. Uh, the new deadline is five o'clock today to get a new deal done on the CBA before uh, regular season games could potentially be lost. So we will be with you throughout the day on all of our social media channels on uh, at Mass and Orioles on Twitter, of course, on Facebook. So stay locked on and MassinSports.com and the Masson app. We will have full coverage up to the deadline, and, and hopefully we have some good news to talk about right after 5 o'clock. But, Brendan, we have other topics we do. to discuss here on this podcast today. Let's start with the biggest news of the day yesterday. <laughs> A tweet was floated out there into the... Uh, into the universe, into Orioles Twitter, made its rounds, and it was about uh, one Carlos Correa. Yeah. It, there was a report that the Orioles <laughs> had been linked to Carlos Correa. It wasn't really any well, specifics. No, no. Now, if you hit the translate, tweet, it was in Spanish. I, I'm not particularly fluent in Spanish, but I did translate the tweet through the, through the app. It's, it's that the Orioles are... Willing to do everything possible to sign Carlos Correa. This is according to Raul Ramos of Con Las Bases Llenas, with the bases loaded. Uh, so, it's, so it's more than linked. It is the Orioles have interest in that they will apparently do everything whatever it possible. takes to sign. Car Look, I'm not going to buy too much into it because pretty much everything that we have been hearing up to this point was that the Orioles were not going to be major players in free agency because historically they have not been, and especially over the last few years, the Orioles have not made this kind of big-time move. However, <laughs> I have argued on and off this podcast for a while 
that it would make a ton of sense yeah. for the Orioles to go after Carlos Correa. It would be a similar move to what the Padres did, bringing in Manny Machado on a long-term deal, knowing that for the first year or two, they were not going to be a competitive playoff team with Manny Machado, but that by the time their prospects got up to the majors, Machado would be there, be a solid piece, and the young players would join him as Machado was the centerpiece of the team. And if the Orioles were to sign Correa to a long-term deal, he would act in a similar way, where he would be here for a year or two, the young players would come up, hopefully a winning team. And they signed Manny Machado knowing that they had Fernando Tatis Jr. already as their potential franchise shortstop, but they signed Manny Machado who wanted to be a shortstop, and they were okay with blocking him. So the Orioles could obviously do the same thing. They are not too worried about, you know, Jordan Westberg, uh, blocking Jordan Westberg, because if you have a chance to get a, a player like Carlos Correa, you know, you go ahead and do that. However, uh, Rockabaco said yesterday, take several breaths. This is not happening. However, it is funny to see the Orioles link to him. Uh, and they can't do anything right now until the uh, free agency freeze ends. But uh, we've talked about if if the price is right, you're not just going to throw money at anybody. You know, it's it doesn't make sense to overspend for a middling free agent. But if you're spending big time money, you might as well get a blue chip player. Right. But again, the issue there in terms of throwing money at him is that it's probably going to take more money to bring Carlos Correa to Baltimore than it would take for Correa to go to a team like the New York Yankees. Right. Because he would come into a situation knowing that the Orioles are probably not going to be a playoff team for a year or two, at least. Right. So it you would have to overpay for an already very, very expensive yeah. player. But I think this is also a good sign. To, I mean, depending also on the veracity of the report, but this could be a good sign going forward because it shows that the Orioles could be players in this market sooner rather than later and potentially sooner than we realize. I don't really know. I haven't looked too far ahead as to who the top free agents are going to be in seven months time when uh, the 2022 season ends. But there's a chance that if the Orioles make enough improvements on the field, maybe not win loss wise, but they show enough promise with Adley Rutschman, maybe Grayson Rodriguez debuts, maybe DL Hall, they show that, that they have the nucleus of a winning team. That could be an attractive offer, uh, an attractive piece for free agents to say, hey, we're, our, we're building something here. You can get in on the ground level. You can be the, the leader of this team going forward. And there's a chance that the Orioles might be willing to sign one of these guys next winter to a big dollar amount. Yeah, but it also has to be very much the right player. It does. I mean, Carlos Correa is not only an unbelievable talent, he's also still a few years shy of 30, which yeah. is pretty rare for a free agent, especially of this caliber. Yes. So you're not signing a, a 30, 31-year-old player at this point if you would be the Orioles going after Carlos Correa. You're signing somebody who will probably continue to be in his prime for the next four or five years. Yeah. So the long-term deal doesn't kill you if you're signing a 30-year-old whereas Correa is still a few years shot. Which is why the deals like Correa and Bryce Harper and Manny Machado, those guys got the money that they did because those guys were still not 30 years old when they signed their deals. Right. So if those guys, those guys are becoming increasingly rare. You know, Juan Soto is going to be the next huge, incredible, mind-boggling amount of money free agent 
who's going to be younger than 30 who's going to sign a deal. But other than that, I mean, those guys are going to be hard to sign. They're yeah. going to be hard to find. Wander Franco is, is locked up, and more of these players, like Ronald Acuna and those type players, are, are if they debut young, the team's going to try to get them locked onto an extension. Right. So they're, they're not going to hit the free agent market more often than not. Yeah, pretty much as quickly as possible. Right. I mean, Wanda Franco's, what, still a teenager pretty much? Yeah. So, like, you try to lock these players down because you know when you have a franchise player, yeah. you don't want them to even sniff free agency. Right. Yeah, Tatis is another one. Right. Um, all right. Let's talk about uh, some of the potential future stars that the Orioles have in their system. We've seen a lot of new prospect rankings, both national prospect rankings in terms of top 100s and Farm by farm, system by system, 30 of the best Orioles prospects, 45 when it comes to fan graphs. So we're going to talk about the differences, comparing and contrasting, if you want to uh, throw it back to like middle school projects. They always compare and contrast. I remember oh, that, that was, was a big, big question. Thing. Yeah, um, We're going to compare and contrast the different prospect rankings, where the Orioles are in the top 100, which Orioles are in the top 100, and where they are ranked amongst themselves. We do not have MLB Pipeline. That is the only one that has not been updated since, I believe, the middle of 2021, since post-trade deadline 2021. I think they're going to have a new ranking soon at some point, but we're just going off of the most recent one, which is not updated, so we don't have the recent international signings in there, uh, and it doesn't really take into account the final couple months of the season, where which... Ended up being pretty impactful for a few Orioles prospects. Yeah, we'll still talk about the MLB pipeline rankings because they're still relevant. They still included at least some of last season, but that's to say, take the MLB pipeline rankings with a grain of salt. Because right. those will change pretty soon. Absolutely. So let's talk about the guys who are in the top 100. And it starts at the top, literally with Adley Rutschman. He is the number one prospect. According to ESPN, MLB pipeline, Baseball America, The Athletic, and Fangraphs. He is still holding off Bobby Witt Jr., who tends to be the second, I believe he's the second-ranked prospect in almost every one of these rankings. I think he is the consensus number two. So it is impressive, considering how good Bobby Witt Jr. is, that Adley is still staying ahead of him. But look, he deserves to be. Until he debuts, he's going to be the number one prospect in baseball. Yeah, I saw a few minor outlets rank Bobby Witt Jr. ahead of Adley Rutschman, but none that were as relevant as the outlets that we are going to talk about here. Yeah. And I think with Adley, the floor is just so high because his defense is already so good, but the ceiling is also incredibly high. His floor, I think, is what separates him from Bobby Witt Jr. Right. And he is a little bit older. He's 24 years old. And I think also people are expecting both of these guys to debut relatively early in 2022. So both of these guys will be graduating soon and then we'll get the next kind of wave. But everybody is in agreement. Those are going to be the five outlets we're going to talk about for the most today. ESPN, MLB Pipeline, Baseball America, The Athletic, and Fangraphs. And Adley still is at the top of all of those rankings. So they have the consensus best prospect in baseball. Yeah, and not only is he great as a prospect, but the positional value helps him in those top 100 rankings as well. Because yes. usually towards the top of the top 100, 
you're looking at positions that are up the middle. So Adley Rutschman at catcher, and then, of course, Bobby Witt Jr. at shortstop, and then there's a lot of center fielders that are close to the top of the top 100 as well as some starting pitchers. So you just go up the middle of the diamond. Those are usually the players that you'll find towards the top of those rankings. And catchers can affect the game in so many ways. You know, shortstops obviously have a premier defensive position once the ball is put in play, but you think about the ways that a catcher can affect the game, throwing out base runners, framing pitches, calling a game. It goes beyond even your ability to simply defend the position. There's such a mental aspect to that game, to that position that Adley Rutschman appears to have all those boxes checked, which is why that gives him a slight edge, I think, over Bobby Wood. Yeah. Um, which is not Bobby Wood Jr.'s fault. It's nope. just still amazing. Yeah. All right. So we got Adley at the top. The next ranked guy is Grayson Rodriguez, and it depends on who you ask as to whether Grayson Rodriguez is a top 10 prospect. So MLB Pipeline has him at eight. ESPN has him at eight. Fangraphs have, has him at three, the third best prospect in the nation. Baseball America has him at six, and then The Athletic is the only outlier here, having him at 14 outside of the top 10. Yeah, I think the six to eight range is probably the most realistic for Grayson Rodriguez. First, I want to touch on that 14th ranking by Keith Law and The Athletic. The knock on Grayson Rodriguez and the reason that Keith Law has him ranked 14th is that he hasn't gone past the high 80s in pitch count. And so he is being knocked because there is a question as to whether or not his stuff will fall off once he gets deeper into games. Yeah. But my question to that is, if you've never seen him fall off when he gets deeper into games, why is there any reason to believe that he would? It's pure speculation to say that Grayson Rodriguez's stuff might not hold up once he gets to 95 or 100 pitches. I know we haven't seen him do it yet, but it's just speculating to say that he can't. I think it is speculating, but when you're looking at the top 10 guys, you're looking for absolute sure things. And I think until he kind of shows you that, I understand the, the thinking there. Until he shows you he can do it, you kind of have to... But he hasn't shown you that he can't. Right. It's whether you give him the benefit of the doubt here. Right. And nothing that he's done has warranted not giving him the benefit of the doubt, in my opinion. And I think there could be some concern that the Orioles are doing this on purpose, that they are specifically keeping him under 100 pitches because they're worried behind the scenes that his stuff will diminish. But... I don't think the Orioles have any internal concerns about his stuff. No, I think think that's just managing his arm. I think it's a pure workload thing. Right. Especially after you missed a 2020 minor league season. Right. You don't want to overwork a guy in 2021 and then all of a sudden have an injury happen that could have been prevented if you didn't have him go 100 pitches. True. I do think it is a, a, it's a thought. I mean, it is something to monitor. As we go into 2022, look, we talk about Grayson Rodriguez being on the big league roster at some point during 2022. Once he debuts, are you still going to manage his workload? No, but I I still think, from my perspective, why are you knocking him for something that you have not seen one way or another? No, I I get that. I get that in terms of the ranking. I'm just wondering out loud, are the Orioles going to pull the reins off of Grayson Rodriguez if he starts the season in Norfolk? If, are we going to see him go longer than six innings, longer than 100 pitches? 
or are they going to stick to this? And then if he debuts this year, they're going to say, you know, we like what we see, but we're not moving him past 100 pitches because we want him to have a long career. Or, I mean, it's not like he's had injury concerns. This is not a Steven Strasburg situation. So I think it's going to be something to monitor. Well, this is also not a Grayson Rodriguez specific thing. This is a mentality that the Orioles use with their minor league pitchers in general. It's not like Grayson Rodriguez is the only guy in the system that they won't let go into the 90s or 100s in pitch count. Right. I think once he gets to the majors, the reins will probably be let loose on Grayson Rodriguez and, and he can pitch as far as he looks good in a game there. I just think that it makes complete sense in the minor leagues right now to not push him further than he needs to be yes. pushed. They definitely had a reason to do it in 2021. I'm just wondering, once you take away the concerns about coming off a shortened season, 2022, they will not have that kind of reasoning, that built-in, well, we got to manage his workload because he had a shortened 2020. Right. They're not going to have that anymore. So are they going to let him loose to start the season, or is it something that they're still – is it a rule that they are still maintaining – over Grayson Rodriguez and all the other pitching prospects. Yeah. And with that being said, Fangraphs seems to have zero concerns (laughs) about Grayson Rodriguez, ranking him as the number three prospect in all of baseball. Look, we love Grayson Rodriguez. Number three is pretty high. It is high. Especially when he is over prospects like Julio Rodriguez, who is a potential five-tool major league star. Spencer Torkelson, who was a number one overall pick and can absolutely mash. And then Riley Green, who is a pretty consensus number three to number five prospect wherever you look in prospect rankings. So Fangraphs loves Grayson Rodriguez. And again, so do we. But number three is... Whew. Yeah, it's high. I mean, it, yeah. it, I'm not, uh, neither of us are pro scouts here, but I would put him in my top 10 personally. I wouldn't put him at 14 like the Athletic and Keith Law did, but I probably wouldn't put him at three either. I yeah. think right around the six to eight range, which is where we saw MLB Pipeline, ESPN, Baseball America, that's where I personally would put him. Yeah, five to eight is probably where yeah. I'd put Grayson Rodriguez, but especially putting him over Julio Rodriguez is just... It's lofty. Yeah. Well, talk about workload concerns this next guy dl hall will certainly have some workload questions facing him this season because he pitched only 31 and two-thirds innings last year for Bowie. got off to a ridiculous absurd start for them had a 313 era with almost 16 k's per nine the command was still a concern as he was walking four and a half batters per nine innings um but he was looking like the guy that the Orioles were expecting when they took him with the first-round pick several years ago, he was looking like the third-best prospect in the Orioles' system. And then he had that stress reaction in his elbow. So differences, he, he didn't need Tommy John. It wasn't like he had ligament issues. But he was shut down for the season, which is why we are, when we're looking at these five prospect rankings between MLB Pipeline, ESPN, Fangraphs, Baseball America, and The Athletic, high variance as to where different people land on D.L. Hall. Yeah, Fangraphs, who apparently just loves every single Orioles prospect, has D.L. Hall up at number 27 in the top 100. And then there are some other outlets that have him in the 70s, 80s, 90s. And ESPN has him at 94, Yeah, which feels way too low for D.L. Hall. In fairness, 27 is, is pretty high. 27 is, I think, probably where D.L. Hall would fall if he didn't have the injury and you were looking 
purely at the talent, D.L. Hall has the talent to be a top 30 prospect in all of baseball. His stuff is ridiculous. He was putting up, like you mentioned, better strikeout numbers to start last season than even Grayson Rodriguez was. Yeah. So the number 27 ranking by Fangraphs is fair based on the talent, but the injury is a concern. The losing a year of pitching is a concern. So I think a ranking that has him in the 40s or 50s is probably more fair. I wouldn't drop him as low as some of the other outlets did that have him in the 70s, 80s, 90s. That feels way too low. That feels a little low. Yeah, if he had put up a 313 ERA with 16 Ks per nine through an entire season, if he threw 100 innings this year for Bowie and he had those numbers at the end of the year, I would put him at 27. Right. At least. Maybe even higher. 16 Ks per nine. How many starting pitchers in minor league baseball are going to achieve those kind of numbers? 27, while it feels high, I agree. The 90s feels way too low. And it just depends on on how big of an issue you think this is going to be for him going forward. And he did take steps forward in terms of command. I mean, two years ago in 2019, now three years ago, when he was with High A Frederick, he was walking six batters per nine, which was way too high. And he took steps to correct that and got down to four and a half per nine. Still not ideal. And when you're missing that significant amount of time with injury, plus the command issues, plus he's already a year older than Grayson Rodriguez, and and Rodriguez has the potential to make his debut before D.L. Hall, I think there is justifiable concern here. I'm glad he didn't fall out of anybody's top 100. I think that would have been absurd. But it just depends on how serious you think this injury was and how much you think it, it could affect him going forward, coupled with the command concerns. Yeah, I, to be fair, I do think the number 94 ranking by ESPN is absurd. And also, The Athletic dropped him down to the number five prospect in the Orioles' top 20. I think that's also a little ridiculous because his stuff is still unbelievable, and I'm not ready to put a Colton Kowser or a Gunnar Henderson ahead of D.L. Hall at this point because until we see that the stuff is miraculously gone for D.L. Hall, his stuff is going to play. It's also difficult comparing pitchers to position players. Yeah. It's the nature of the game. You know, you have to be able to do that if you're putting all these guys in the same pot, but it, it can be difficult to look at a great position player and a great pitcher and say who, who offers more future value. Here. Absolutely, but I think when you're looking at the ceilings of, yeah. say, a Colton Kowser or a D.L. Hall, I think the ceiling for Hall is still pretty clearly higher. Well, Colton Kowser is the cons- another consensus top 100 player. He His average score here is 68. So of these five, he is the 68th best prospect in the country by average. MLB Pipeline has him at 76. ESPN has him at 74. Fangraphs loves Colton Kowser. This is a theme. They have him at 40. Baseball America has him at 98, sitting on the verge of the top 100. And the Athletic has him at 52. So another variance, high variance here. Not as much as D.L. Hall, but people have him as high as 40 and as low as 98. Yeah, and the variance is really weird for Colton Kowser because he's a prospect that even in the draft, pretty much everybody agreed that he was not going to have the highest ceiling in the draft but his floor was also going to be very high. It seemed like, at worst, Colton Kowser was going to be a corner outfielder, a starting corner outfielder in the majors that hit for a pretty good average, 
maybe 15 to 20 home runs if his power didn't progress that much. And he was going to be pretty solid defensively. That seems like the floor for Colton Kowser. So to have him at 98 from Baseball America, that's a weird ranking. That must be that they just don't think his ceiling is that high. Right. And for prospects and for different prospect rankings, outlets, scouts, they look at different things. And if if they don't, they probably are betting more on the upside of other prospects than they are with Colton Kowser. But I don't know what else Colton Kowser could have possibly done in his shortened pro debut to show that he is a better player than the 98th best prospect in the country. He was absolutely incredible. He hit 327 in the shortened sample size the month that he got in Delmarva after crushing and hitting the cover off the ball in the Florida Complex League. I mean, the guy is as advertised in terms of bat-to-ball skills. I do think the power is going to get better because he is a little bit lean right now, but that frame looks like he could add some weight. That's at least what scouts tend to think as well. And he at least will be an above-average corner outfielder defensively. If he can't stay in center, which I think there's a good possibility he can, based on his arm strength and his speed, I think that he could be an above-average corner outfielder. And that player is still very, very useful. Right. I don't know how somebody with who it seems like has a floor of an above-average corner outfielder is the 98th best prospect in baseball. I think somewhere in the... 50s, 60s, 70s makes a lot more sense. I would lean more towards the 50s or 60s based on what we saw last year. Yeah, I, I'm going to be, I think he is one of going to be the, the prospect to watch this year because I think his ceiling could be higher than we realize. I mean, that his bat-to-ball skills were so unbelievably good right? in the, the small sample size that we got. I'm curious to see just how good they are. I mean, can he be a 310 hitter in the big leagues? There's a chance. He could. And even if his power is only, like you said, 15 to 20, even if he doesn't add that much weight and doesn't add that much strength to increase his power, he's still hitting from the left side at Camden Yards. So he's going at, at the warehouse. He's going at the at Utah Street in the flag court. That's not a ridiculous you know, goal to hit there. Right, which is now probably the easier place to hit a home run exactly. at Camden Yards. Exactly. Um, I think that this guy really has a higher ceiling than we might realize. And sometimes the guys that have a ridiculously high floor end up being the best players just because the odds that a player hits his ceiling are are just so low. Right, and we classify a prospect as a high floor prospect for a reason. It's because a lot of their tools coming into the draft or coming into their first taste of professional baseball, the tools are already ready. Right. Like the tools are already good. That's why they're a high floor player. So Colton Kowser's plate approach was already good enough for a taste of professional baseball like we saw last year. Right. That's the reason he's a high floor prospect. Well, and he got so much better over the course of his career at Sam Houston that there are naturally some concerns when he came out into the draft about was his junior year somewhat fluky? You know, was he closer to the player that they saw freshman and sophomore year who was just not that good of a hitter, was a a fine hitter, but wasn't elite like he was in his junior year? But there's the other side of the coin, which is how much better can he be? If he took that leap his junior year and then he takes another leap once he gets into pro ball, maybe he's tapping into something that he had not previously discovered. Yeah, I I think it's very possible that His ceiling, like you said, is higher than we thought it was. Right. All right. So those are all the top 100 
consensus guys, and there is uh, one more on this list who is in every single one of these five top 100s. That's Gunnar Henderson. His average is a 73, so he is slightly below Colton Kowser, who averages 68. MLB Pipeline has him at 74. ESPN has him at 96. Fangraphs has him at 66. Baseball America at 57. And The Athletic at 73. Gunnar hit the cover off the ball when he was in Aberdeen. Hit 312 with eight homers in, or sorry, in Delmarva, excuse me, uh, in uh, 35 games in Delmarva. Then he got called up to Aberdeen and he ended the season in Bowie. So over those last 70 games, he did only hit 229 with nine homers between Aberdeen and Bowie. However, I think that the power is real from the left side of the plate. He has the ability to go gap to gap and he has the ability to go to the opposite way. And people seem to think that he could be a very good defensive third baseman as well. And the important thing to keep in mind with Gunnar Henderson, you mentioned the numbers that he struggled a little bit more once he got up to higher levels. This is a kid who's also swinging way above his weight class in terms of age. He is much younger than all of the guys that he is playing with, especially when he got up to double a buoy at the end of last year. Gunnar Henderson is way younger than those guys. And it makes sense that his numbers are not as good as somebody like a Jordan Westberg, who should be at that level because he was an experienced college player in the SEC. And you would expect an older Jordan Westberg to put up better numbers at double A. Whereas Gunnar Henderson drafted him out of high school and the Orioles have moved him up pretty quickly because he's deserved it, but he's still a lot younger than his competition. So it, stands to reason that his numbers would not be where you see some other guys who are older and more experienced at that level. And if we're making a comparison to Colton Kowser, I know they play different positions, but whereas Kowser we just talked about is a high floor, I think Gunner has the higher ceiling, but the floor could be lower than some of the other prospects on this list. Yeah, and Gunnar Henderson, a lot of people are saying, too, that he will probably not stick at shortstop as he fills out a little bit more. He's a big dude. 6'3". Yeah. He's six foot three, and he's, uh, I think, what, like 2'10"? Yeah. So he really does not... There are not too many comparisons to him at shortstop. I know that there are some bigger shortstops in baseball right now, and there have been over the last 10 or 20 years, but not a whole lot of guys that are that big. Yeah, he draws a lot of Corey Seager comparisons because of the size and because of the plate approach. Yeah. Even if Gunnar Henderson can't stay at shortstop, usually if you slide from shortstop to third base and you were already pretty good defensively at shortstop, you're usually an elite defensive third baseman. Yes. I mean, like look at Alex Rodriguez when he went to the Yankees. He was a good defensive shortstop, Amazing defensive third baseman. Gunnar Henderson could have the same kind of shift if the Orioles decide that he wants to be an everyday third baseman. Cal Ripken Jr. That too. I, yeah. A little lofty. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll go ahead and say it's a little lofty. I don't think he's gonna, Gunnar's going to spend 10 years at shortstop then move to third. But the point being, if you are good defensively at short, you're probably yeah. going to be really good at third. Absolutely. I mean, it, it's probably more instincts and reaction time and arm strength if he doesn't have the lateral quickness, which for a guy who's six foot three, odds are you're not going to have the lateral quickness of somebody who is a little bit shorter than you. Right. Um, but he could have the range. He could have the instincts. He could have all those things. And at least Keith Law with the Athletics seems to think he could be an elite uh, defensive third baseman. I am curious to see how his power develops as the in 2022, where he's probably going to start in Bowie, 
And I think that because that batting average, I don't think he's ever good, good maybe, but I don't think he's ever going to be a 300 hitter at the big league level. So can his power, can he be a 25 plus homer guy? Right. You know, can he show enough? Because he mashed, as mentioned, he had eight homers in his first 35 games and then nine homers in the next 70. So I think the power is going to be the make or break tool for Gunnar Henderson because that could make him a legitimately productive MLB player or it could just make him a middling MLB player. Right, because we've seen so far as he's moved up a little more swing and miss get introduced into yes. his game as he goes to higher levels. But if the power is there, then it doesn't matter as much if you have a decent amount of swing and miss in your game because if you're hitting 30 home runs, nobody cares. Right, and I think the good thing is he has the extra stuff. He has the mentality. He has the work ethic. He seems to have a good head on his shoulders from everything that we've heard and from our conversations with him. So the Orioles can bet on the fact that he will improve in the areas he needs to because he has those external factors. Right. And he appears, once he got to Bowie, he was talking about making good swing decisions, improving his eye at the plate. Uh, he seems like he knows what he needs to work on, which is a very, very good thing for a kid his age. Yeah, and another prospect ranking that makes me kind of question how much ESPN watched the Orioles because Gunnar Henderson comes in at 96 and D.L. Hall at 94 that's pretty low for those guys. Yeah. Well, and I think, honestly, D.L. Hall should be not leaps and bounds, not heads and shoulder, head and shoulders, but he should be a good amount away from Gunnar Henderson. And that's not a knock on Gunnar Henderson. It is not. Yeah. That is a compliment to D.L. Hall. Yeah. There should be a gap there. It, and it, there is not. Yeah. They just kind of squeezed a couple of Orioles right into the late 90s here. Yeah, I think we said yesterday that ESPN got to the 90s, realized they had three Orioles in the top 100, and went, whoopsies. Yeah, just squeeze them in there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, our next guy that the Orioles had at, that ESPN, excuse me, had at 98, Kobe Mayo, getting some love. The hype train. The hype train is, is so far from the station. Yeah, it's too late to get on. I'm yeah. sorry. You, you, you can't uh, get your ticket. It's, it's moving. It's moving. It's a super speed train. Sure. Yeah. One of those that hovers above the tracks. Those are pretty cool. Those are cool. Yeah. Uh, Kobe Mayo only needed, what, how many, 53 games in pro ball? Not a lot. Before his hype train started rolling out of the station. Remember, he was a fourth round pick by the Orioles, signed above slot in 2020. And the ceiling has always been high for this kid. And we got to see how good he could be in pro ball in his small sample size. I could not be, when we went down to see him in Delmarva, I could not have been more impressed. First off, his size and power are obvious. I mean, he's six foot five, 215 pounds. He is, seems to be incredibly smart for his age. He's still very young. And from everything we've heard, the, the, Exit velo and his bat-to-ball skills are unbelievable. Yeah, and he's hitting for a pretty good average right now, too. Not just a pretty good, a very, very good average for a power hitter. Uh, as the great Michael Jordan said, the ceiling is the roof for Kobe Mayo. Every time he makes contact with the ball, you think it's going to another zip code. Yeah. His power is pretty unbelievable. Yeah, and it's a, an approach. It's not a big leg kick which I think shows it could be, you could look at the good side of that and say he, he's not going to have a whole lot of swing and miss because odds are 
if somebody like a, look at Heston Kerstad's swing, Heston Kerstad has a massive leg kick and there are concerns that he's going to have a ton of strikeouts. While he will deliver that power, he will have a ton of strikeouts. The lack of leg kick could mean that Kobe Mayo could have a, you know, a better bat to ball rate than somebody who is a pure power hitter. Right. And I, th- I just think the ceiling with Mayo is so big that it vaults him into the top 100. I don't know how high I would put him at this point because it's just, it's so projectable right yeah. now because he's still at the lower levels of the minors and we haven't seen him play a lot of games, but he has everything that you would want out of a potential power hitting third baseman. Right. I mean, Baseball America just tweeted yesterday that he joined their top 10 third base prospects. Yeah. So he's moving up. He also has a cannon for an arm. He does. Defensively at third base, I don't know how his mobility is because he's a huge kid, like you mentioned. So the mobility might be a factor, but he has a cannon at the hot corner. Yeah, so ESPN has him at 98, as mentioned. Fangraphs has him at 69, but lists him as a right fielder. Did you see that? I don't think I... That's weird. And there are some concerns. So for context, the athletics, Keith Law has him unranked in this top 100 and has him nine in the Oriole system and doesn't know if he can stick at third because of how big he is. And Keith Law brings up the fact that Mayo is six foot five, two fifteen, And there are only two players who are at least that height and weight who have even played a full season's worth of games at third base in the big leagues. So those, as rare as it is to see a six foot three shortstop, like we were talking about with Gunnar Henderson, it's even more rare to see a six foot five, 215 pound third baseman. I mean, he would make sense as a right fielder, I yeah, guess. But they haven't theoretically, we but haven't, they haven't put him there. Yeah, we haven't been given any indication that I'm, I'm sure he could play that position. Right. Like, this isn't a Gunnar Henderson situation where we are assuming that he will be a third baseman because we've seen him there a lot. Right. We have not seen Kobe Mayo in a corner. It would make sense. I mean, like I said, he's big. He's got a cannon for an arm. Yeah. That seems like a right fielder, especially when you're talking about the fact that right fielders traditionally are your big power hitters on your team because you kind of hide those guys in a corner outfield spot. Right. And right fielders generally have a stronger arm than left fielders. So it makes sense, but yeah. we haven't seen it. We haven't seen it yet. And I think the Orioles could be willing to try it, but they're going to try him at third base for as long as they possibly can. I mean, incredibly projectable, like you said. It, he showed absolutely everything and more in those 53 games when he hit 319 with nine homers. He also had 11 stolen bases and was not caught once, by the way. Yeah. His hit tool and his power might be so good that it does not matter where you put him defensively. Which is kind of similar to the last few years when we've been talking about Ryan Mountcastle. Yeah. You tried him at, well, you tried him at short when he first got drafted. You try him at third. You try him in a corner outfield. If all else fails, you put him at first and you live with it because his bat is so good that he needs to be in the lineup. I don't care if Kobe Mayo is playing third, right, left, first. Get him in the lineup. This is feels a little bit like a, a first date that almost goes too well. And you're like, you know, freaking out about it. And you're like, wow, that was that was a great first date. But you have to calm yourself and realize it was just a first date. It's just 53 games. But he looked really good. He did. Are we falling again for another prospect here, oh. Brendan? I mean, look, I've been you, on the Kobe Mayo hype train. <laughs> you know, you are falling I have been on the Kobe all, Mayo yeah. hype train for a very long time. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not quite the conductor of the hype train, but no. I'm definitely in one of the top cars. Uh, it's, it, it is just exciting to think about what he could possibly do 
uh, and I'm excited to see him in a full season. All right, so those are all the guys who have appearances in the top 100. In terms of guys who could make the top 100 soon, I think Jordan Westberg, I've talked about him for a while. I I thought Jordan Westberg would make the top 100 before Kobe Mayo made the top 100. Yeah, Westberg, again, it's just the ceiling isn't incredibly high. Right. Even though the floor is very good. But again, with Westberg, what else could he have shown you? I mean, he hit in the two, like 287. He showed a legitimate amount of pop. He was great defensively at third and short. What else could he have shown you? But I think... Prospect rankings, they tend to go with the higher upside guys. Yeah. Another guy who probably could not have shown you any more to get into a top 100, Kyle Stowers. Yeah. Not very high ranked in in even the Orioles top 30s when you look across these different outlets, which I think should probably be changed. Kyle Stowers, usually around the 8 to 12 range in an Orioles top 30 or top 20. But what else is he supposed to do to show that he should move up in prospect rankings or even make his way into a top 100? I mean, that was an established college bat who just had such a good season that he was a co-minor league player of the year with the number one prospect in all of baseball. Yeah, exactly. What else does that guy have to do? I, I think there are some concerns maybe of how sustainable it could be just because his 2019 season, his debut was very poor offensively at the plate. But look, if you buy the changes that he made, if you buy the power and the increased strength, there's no reason to keep him out of a top 100. I'm buying it. He did it for a whole season. He did. All right, let's talk about the specific Orioles rankings because Fangraphs gave out their top 45. The Athletic gave out, I believe, uh, it was like top, top 20. 20. Um, so from Fangraphs' perspective, some names that stick out First off, you got to talk about the two recent international signings because this is the first time we get to see them in a top prospect rankings. Leandro Arias debuts at number 12. Cesar Prieto de- debuts at number 14. Both of those guys, first time we're getting to see them. Seems about right considering what their, you know, what their scouting reports were when the Orioles signed them and what their they attend to bring to the table two guys that are very different however very different age-wise I mean Arias I believe is 17 and Prieto is like 22 so one guy has much more body of work in Prieto he's shown that he can hit uh in at least Cuban pitching whether he can translate that over to the Orioles farm system is yet to be determined and then Arias is somebody we're not going to see for a long time but still has a high ceiling. Yeah, and surprising that we didn't see Braylon Tavera anywhere in those rankings. He was the highest paid international signing of this window, so surprising that we don't see him in the Fangraphs rankings. I think Cesar Prieto was a really intriguing prospect at number 16. Like you mentioned, his bat in Cuba was unbelievable. He was the best pure hitter in Cuba. Yeah. And at just 22 years old, he will probably have a chance to move up a lot quicker than Leandro Arias, even though he's ranked a little bit higher. Prieto's 22. If he hits well in wherever they start him, he is going to move up quickly. I don't think he makes the majors this year, but if he even gets up to double-A, triple-A, we could be talking about Cesar Prieto as a potential Oriole in a year or two. Yeah, we could. Uh, and then uh, also notable on Fangraph's side, just how much they love Kobe Mayo. He's at six. In the Orioles' prospect rankings, ahead of Kyle Bradish, Kyle Stowers, Jordan Westberg, and Heston Kerstad. Yeah, that betting on the upside—that's high. They're betting uh, on the upside. The hype train, Fangraphs might be towards the top of that hype train as well. Yeah. Um, all right, and then in the Athletic, in terms of their top twenty, big shocker: Joey Ortiz at number seven. That is by far the highest I've 
ever seen him. And I like Joey Ortiz. He seems like a solid defensive middle infielder, can play shortstop, can probably play second base at a higher level. Uh, had showed a whole lot in a shortened 35 games in Aberdeen, then got called up to Bowie and was pretty good there as well. All in all, he hit 265 with four homers in 801 at OPS. Um, and then, he, he, you know, he turns 24 in July, so he's a little bit older. I like Joey Ortiz. I don't know if I like him this much. No, and I don't know if I like him so much that I would rank him ahead of Connor Norby, Kobe Mayo, Heston Kerstad, and Kyle Stowers. Yeah. Especially Kyle Stowers. Those are some players with some incredibly high ceilings. Yeah. And Joey Ortiz, like you mentioned, is probably one of the better defensive shortstops in the Orioles system. One of the better defenders in general, if you want Joey Ortiz to be a utility type of player. But I, I don't know about you, Paul. When I kind of look at Joey Ortiz and his game, I don't know if I see him as a starter at any point in his potential major league career. I think I see Joey Ortiz as a good defensive piece where you hope that the bat is good enough that he can be a solid utility player. That's right. how I've always viewed him. Well, I think, though, a bigger sample size could change our mind because he was very good in that, you know, 70-some game sample size that we got to see him this year, but we didn't get to see enough of him. So maybe he changes our minds. And honestly, I think the X factor here is his defense because we don't have really ways to judge his defense. We don't have any advanced metrics at our disposal for the minor leagues. All we can do is go off what scouts are saying in our own eyes. And he looked good defensively, but honestly, we didn't get to see enough of him. So if he can be a very good defensive shortstop, maybe that is the tool that pushes him. That is the X factor that pushes him into the conversation for top 10 Orioles prospects and, and could be a starter at some point down the line. But until we see that, it's tough to put him ahead of guys like Kyle Stowers, who is seven months older, but has gotten up to AAA and was an incredible power hitter. Right. It, if it is elite defense, like you said, it's elite defense at a very, very valuable position of shortstop. And we were talking about, Paul, a few podcasts ago, where if Jordan Westberg doesn't end up at shortstop, where do the Orioles go in their farm system, yeah. are they kind of out of luck when it comes to shortstop if Gunnar Henderson has to move and Jordan Westberg isn't good enough there defensively to play shortstop? Maybe the answer is Joey Ortiz, yeah. at least in the prospect right? And I said 70 games, 35. That's all he had, 35 total. Not, not 35 at Aberdeen, 35 at Bowie. He got 35 total games for us to see him. And, you know, the athletic, Keith Law specifically mentions changes that he made at the plate, some swing changes, and he added some bulk. I just don't know if I buy it that much to the point where I'm ready to, to move him on up. Yeah, I will get on the Joey Ortiz hype train. I just don't know if it's going to take off that fast. I mean, yeah. he's a good prospect. He's a good player. Hopefully the defense is where we think it is, but we need to see more. Exactly. All right. Well, any other interesting uh, tidbits? That's I, I, I thought it was interesting. One name that we just don't talk about enough on this podcast, probably Kyle Brinovich. Yeah. He comes in at number 17 on the Fangraphs, top 45 Orioles prospects. Brinovich, we haven't really talked about that much because he doesn't really, at least as of last year, didn't fall into the same category as a Mike Bauman, Zach Lowther, Alexander Wells. 
but I don't I don't think he's as good as a Kyle Bradish, who is a name that he's been tossed around with sometimes. I think he's probably a tier below there, but Brinovich could kind of be a sleeper candidate when you're looking at the future of the Orioles rotation. Yeah, some guys who have also fallen. Kevin Smith has fallen quite a lot. Kevin Smith's way down. He has fallen. Mike Bauman has fallen. And I think that is due to the fact that those guys really struggled in Norfolk. And I think that's why the Orioles chose to make a coaching change there and why they're going to have Buck Britton handle things and Justin Ramsey handle things there. And we'll see if we can get better production out of some of those pitchers because that is a little bit concerning to see some guys that formerly, Kevin Smith was the formerly the Orioles' number 11 prospect. You know, uh, Mike Bauman was formerly the Orioles' number 10 prospect, and these guys are now falling into the 20s and 30s. Yeah, we'll see once the MLB pipeline rankings are updated where some of these guys fall, but you mentioned Mike Bauman. I don't think he's going to stay as the number 10 prospect. Kyle Stowers currently ranked number 11 in the Orioles' top 30. I think he probably moves up there. Usniel Diaz at number 12. He's going to move down from number 12. Adam Hall will probably get bumped down from number 15. If I had to guess, Kobe Mayo will definitely go up from number 17. Another he will probably end up in the top 10. I, I would think, at least. Uh, uh, you mentioned Adam Hall, another guy that Keith Law loves. He said a personal favorite of his. I like Adam Hall. I, I don't know if he's in my top 20 right now if I were to come out with the rankings just because he hit he had an OPS under 700 this past year. But I think Adam Hall probably falls somewhere in the 20 to 25 range. Probably. Probably. It depends on whether you think that he can correct the mistakes that he made in, in uh, 2021 because he did not look very good at the plate. Yeah, Adam Hall is just a case of numbers versus tools, I yes. think, because Adam Hall has the tools. He's really, really fast. He is theoretically good defensively because of that speed and the range that should probably be there, whether he plays center field or second base. And his hit tool coming in was supposed to be pretty good. Yeah. So... The production hasn't been there, but the tools and potential, I think, are still there with Adam Hall, which is why I would rank him. Again, I'm not a scout, but if I were putting him somewhere, I'd probably say 20 to 25. Well, we want to know what you think of these prospect rankings. We want to hear from the amateur scouts out there as well as to how you would rank these prospects in the Orioles system. Is Kobe Mayo, are you on the hype train? Do you think he should be a legitimate top 100 prospect or maybe even top 50? Do you think that he deserves to be ahead of some of the other guys in the Orioles system? Do you think that Joey Ortiz, we're sleeping on Joey Ortiz over here. We should be considering him a top 10 prospect in the Orioles system. At Paul Mancano is my Twitter handle. At Brendan Morty is his. Of course, you can catch the podcast on Spotify, SoundCloud. Anywhere you get your podcast, you can get the Mass and All Access podcast. And please watch along with us every week on YouTube and on Facebook. As mentioned, we are hoping that uh, we will have some kind of resolution in terms of the lockout today, and we will keep you updated on all of our social media channels and potentially be going live sometime today, knock on wood, if we get some good news at some point down the line. But in the meantime, thanks so much for tuning in. Thanks to Bobby Blanco for producing this podcast, and we will see you soon.